0: I was in Leipzig. It was my first time in Europe and winter there was just starting to let up. I stayed in an apartment with three kind anarchists with whom I would outstay my welcome. Often the skies were unceasingly grey and sitting around the kitchen table you couldn't keep track of the time of day. But if there was a hint of sunlight... We would sit on the roof of the bike shed and picnic, drink, and play celebrity heads. One time I was Plato, and indeed it was as though we'd been in a cave and were finally being coaxed out into bright, shining days or mad nights. There was rumour of an underground party in an old nuclear bunker. At least that's what I heard. Perhaps it was myth or mistranslation. If it was advertising, it worked. This was what I'd hoped to find from East Germany, an adventure made from a mixture of history and cheap shots, dancing in the rubble of the old war and the shadow of the Cold War. I went with my mates, a cohort of us riding bikes down the boulevards, bells tinging as we crossed the tram lines. It was after midnight. We descended into a warren. Industrial music pulsed from an unseen source. We lost each other. All was shadows and confusion. It was perfect. Then there were the cries. "Polizei!" Police. Eventually we were all ushered out onto the street, our silhouettes slashed by their fierce torchlight pushed through the corridors of that rabbit hole and above ground again. But now on the road we milled as a mob, and a chant arose, a mantra sung out in five unforgettable English words. Party is not a crime. Party is not a crime. That chant, that night, eventually they both petered out. For us, day broke in a petrol station that sold punnets of hot chips, and ever since I have told that story as a fable about the indomitable German spirit, the desire to party which cannot be beaten. I think it's a great catchphrase. Party is not a crime. But for large sections of the past year or so, it has been. And for those of us whose livelihoods are in part derived from festivals and events, from entertaining punters, from putting on parties. It's been a challenging period of time. And perhaps it will be a long time before it feels the same again. I look back on those halcyon days, or halcyon nights mostly, in which we gathered close together and didn't think much of releasing particles of spit as we sang along to the lyrics of a Bruce Springsteen remix. But it's given me a chance to think of this word party from a different perspective. There is a linguistic relationship between party and a part. A party is a bringing together of people, an opposite of being a part. A part is a portion of the whole. To partition something is to divide it. The words that signify sharing in the Romantic languages have the word part in them. Compartir in Spanish, for example. A party like the one I went to in Leipzig has as its purpose a sort of social unity. There we were all trying to dance our way into the same delirium with a mutual love for that highest of art forms, electronic music. A political party has much the same intention, although the medium is rather different. Even now, as I'm sure you know, cities, whole countries come and go out of restrictions, Live gigs are cancelled at the drop of a hat. Crowds are driven away even from football matches. Party is sometimes, in some places, a criminal act. And travel to somewhere like Germany is still unthinkable for me. I haven't left my island for 16 months. Just kind of like a life sentence. And so it is that sometimes I feel that circumstances have made me feel very much apart. Separated and disconnected from all those around me. Then again, I have chosen to live fairly far away from most people. On the edge of a village at a latitude and longitude that does not know a large population. In an old railway wagon disconnected from the rest of its train. An isolated little shack without electricity. I would struggle these days to live in a city... And in fact, as aloof as I have made my life out here, I would never feel more isolated than if I lived in an apartment, each of which seems, in linguistic and architectural design, to be a space made to keep people from being together, to keep people apart. But maybe that's just my bias. I'm this weird mix of extrovert and introvert. I've set myself up so that I see all too many people at once, and then need to be able to retreat to the bush, to the friendship of birds, to open space and to hours of introspection. And then I live in Tasmania, which topographically at least is a place apart. Throughout the past year and a bit we have kept our borders closed for long stints of time, and given that it is a real, physical outline, a crust of cliff and beach, the border closures have been easy enough to enforce. We have a moat, wrote the Hobart newspaper in their front page headlines, and we're not afraid to use it. For most of us, this has meant a rather pain-free pandemic. But extended isolation has its effects. There is something psychologically interesting about living on an island at the bottom of the world, feeling as if we're drifting disconnected from the events on other continents. It's been hard to keep up with close friends and even family members who are elsewhere. To have empathy requires some effort and some imagination. And you do wonder, will I ever see these mates of mine, my brother, ever again? Then again there were in early 2020, at the beginning of all the changes, those videos of Italian neighbours sticking their heads out of an apartment block and singing like a street choir. The point seemed to be that we would be able to find ways to overcome the apartness of our lives, even when the architecture was unchangeable and when the restrictions seemed overwhelming. The time has passed, in that weird way which has made it impossible to measure, and you have to ask yourself, Are we still capable of sharing a chorus with those in distant countries? If I stepped now into an arena in Los Angeles, or a bazaar in Tabriz, would I still feel that I had shared an existence with the strangers around me? Or would I feel separate, as if the year of isolation has made my life somehow come asunder from them? I have a world map above my bed and I find myself looking at the awkward fragments of land drifting around on their blue backdrop and thinking how I would connect a series of transport options to get back into the thick of it all someday. Fittingly, I cannot read the place names. They're printed in Japanese. The map was a gift from an old housemaid who went back to Nagano years ago. But I can see all the countries pressed together each wedge butted up against others. And then I looked down at my island and noticed our lack of neighbors, the marine emptiness around us. My home is like that hermit who keeps his distance from society, who lets connections gradually get severed. And those travels of mine served a purpose that I didn't recognize for a long while. They helped me understand myself as part of a bigger, broader story the plot being the fate of people on a shared planet. No man is an island, wrote the old poet. And so it turned out that everywhere I visited I found further details about how it is to be human. Even Tasmanians can recognise themselves in most of the themes of human existence. And thus I leaned into a common narrative, the ancient complicated tale of our species. I play a game with mates. If all of a sudden you could go anywhere in the world, no questions asked, to where would you be travelling? My answers change drastically each time the question is turned back to me. Uzbekistan, Japan, Armenia, Chile, Kenya. But such flights aren't happening yet. Instead I look above and see a familiar form. The peregrine falcon, that impressive bird of prey who inscribes the same circles in the sky all across the planet. Some of us share the falcon, and failing that, we share the sun, we share the moon. So there are stories that sew up the gaps between us. They can stand in place, while physically we may remain many miles apart. I had found myself wandering in rural Rajasthan, bouncing between villages at the invitation of utter strangers who wanted to show off their paddocks of peanuts or potatoes. In one village I was brought into the home of the Sarpanch, the Elder, and we sat cross-legged on a woven daybed and spoke about money as we drank cups of hot milky tea as sweet as morning light. And as always I lied and said I was a teacher, and made up some modest figure when I was asked what I was paid per annum, because what else was I to say? That I was an unemployed wannabe writer living off some savings and the smell of an oily rag? The walls were whitewashed and discs of flatbread were being cooked in rooftop stoves. Everything shimmered as if it had been rubbed down with mustard oil. And the women wore the patent scarves and veils of purda, daughters and wives whose public lives took place behind colourful curtains which they flipped dexterously over their heads even as they brought out the tea or chapatis, or stood at the window to eavesdrop on us and observe my incongruous presence. I caught a glimpse of one woman who bared half her face, showing half of her pursed smile, a portion of her plaited hair, a single eye that briefly permitted itself to be seen as it went on seeing. A few days later I fell ill. Some cultures would hold beliefs that suggest I might have gotten sick because of the illicit gaze of the half-veiled village woman. But with an equal lack of scientific process, I laid the blame on some green chutney I'd eaten. By then I was on the outskirts of Jaipur, a sprawling city where an excellent literature festival was being held. For a week I stayed in the honey colored walls of a fort town, like a pigeon in the notch of its turrets. It's strange to relate. But the night I got sick, I shared the room with two deaf women who I did not know. I was unable to communicate with them in that dark room. And so I dreamed that my voice had been taken from me. That whenever I tried to speak, infectious patchworks of unwanted words appeared, layered over the top of my efforts to talk. I was, of course, delirious and by midnight I'd been driven doubly feverish due to thirst. I felt that for a brief period I had inhabited the existence of someone who had been deprived of basic rights, whose needs were not met, and yet I could not ask for help. I was suddenly someone who had been politically disempowered, socially separated. I had had the mute condition of an unprivileged person imposed upon me. It was an unusual night. And of course, in the morning, all that mayhem had passed from my mind and indeed my life. And I was not that unfortunate person anymore. I even felt well enough to go out and buy a bottle of water and a banana. And I was free to do so. When I came back to that room, the two deaf women were readying themselves to leave. We wrote notes to each other, squinting to read them in the slanted shaft of sunlight that entered the room through a small, square aperture in the wall. I forget what I told them of my nightmares, but I still keep the note that one of the women scribbled for me. In it, she had said that they had felt me dreaming of dreadful things that previous night but neither of them had known how to overcome the various barriers in that room that kept us apart. The note I have says, I'm sorry that although we were together last night, we were also very far away. The social structures differ between cultures, but there's often a feeling amongst us that we are fragmented in every way. So we have all found our own forms of purdah, separated not by patterned fabrics perhaps, but some other invisible material. Yet there are also moments in which we cross the boundaries that fence us apart, when we reach through the curtain and actually connect with one another. When we relate to a stranger and see that we have more in common than not. Apart Pull it apart The very word, I mean Apart Break it into pieces Spread it out Melt it down Like so many simple words, the sort we repeat all the time, this one has a resonance that is quietly and quickly assimilated into us. The word is sharp and dull, like blunt scissors made of a silver that's lost its luster. It has an inbuilt sadness, which we know from a million ballads. It is the essence of so many of our stories, country music and Hollywood films, Romeo and Juliet and many of the relationships in our own lives as well. We get used to it. Many of us anyway. I sometimes wonder about the capacity some of my compatriots have when it comes to living apart. I mean our modern history is built on the separateness of people. A plot repeated over and over in its convicts, exiles, migrants and travellers. It is the great distance between continents, yes, but it's also a product of our cultural context. The first party I was invited to was in Ross, a small town just off the Midland Highway in the middle of Tassie. I drank some pre-mixed cocktail of cordial and grog alongside the ghosts of the convicts who'd been stationed there two centuries earlier. Women and men who, against their will, had been sent to the island at the bottom of the world, to a place then known as Van Diemen's Land. The sense of isolation must have been immense. These individuals, sometimes transported for little more than petty crimes, were sentenced not only to hard labour and a loss of liberty, but they were removed from their families, their histories, their whole lives. Convicts lost parents, children spouses, friends and lovers. One of the era's forms of vernacular literature was the love token, small metal tags marked with brief letters for romantic acquaintances now some 10,000 miles away. I have slept in the prison cells of jailed convicts of the past. These are humourless places, with thick walls, cold floors, windows that let in little light they offer few optimistic prospects, which of course was their purpose. Enforced isolation has long been understood as a severe punishment. This in itself is informative. That human interaction is as important a sustenance as bread or water. Sometimes it seems that as a youngster... I absorbed some of the melancholy that this system instilled in my island society. But all those years ago, as a tipsy teenager in the town of Ross, I didn't know that it was still so close to the surface of my home. Likewise, I didn't realise that I was only a stone's throw from what is now one of my favourite historic landmarks, a convict-era bridge which I'm told is the second-oldest bridge still in use in the whole of Australia. Astride the Macquarie River, The bridge is marked with psychedelic carvings, Celtic motifs and gargoyle portraits of 19th-century locals. It is an unlikely expression of the imagination under restricted circumstances made by a convict stonemason named Daniel Herbert, who was in lockdown and took about a year to produce permanent records of this existence his carefully etched slabs of sandstone, marked with figures that may well have been the only outlet he had for relieving his psyche of the sorrow of exile and separation. It is only coincidence that art is contained in the word apart. It would be fatuous to suggest that there's something in that. It'd be bad faith. A bland cliché. But still. Is there not some resonance in there? Is there something to consider in that echo, accidental as it may be? The truth is that I find writing is the act that sometimes makes me feel the most isolated of all. Yet it is also, far and away, the thing that connects me most to anyone and everyone Such are the bizarre rituals of the past 16 months. I sit alone and write. I murmur stories into a sound recorder with my headphones on. I listen back and edit it all on my computer, solitary, lonely, sick of myself. And then I put the finished product out there. This storyteller's work, shared with all the world. There have been parents stranded away from their children, separated by invisible state lines. The elderly and the unwell have been isolated in hospitals and care facilities. Lovers have been forced apart. Migrants have not been able to get to their own home countries. Friends in the same suburbs have at times struggled to meet for a stroll to the shops. And there have been women and men stuck where they do not want to be, with people they wish they could separate from. Needless to say, this has been a strange episode to live through. For many of us, the memory of it all will be just a blip, as they say, or a speed bump, a curious interlude in which our lives warped unexpectedly. But for others, it will be recalled as an era of trauma and tragedy. I am realising that at some point, I must come to terms with the fact that some separations will never again be sutured up, I have plotted out much of my life in the past ten years with travel in mind, and although parting is a common place, I am always thinking of returning to certain countries, of reuniting with old friends and revisiting past experiences. But now I am in this train carriage going nowhere, and realising that in all likelihood there are people I will never see again, good mates, worthy companions. Virus or otherwise, we are all eventually torn apart, taken from one another. Piece by piece, our social lives split into shards. We separate, and only if we are lucky do we get the chance to say farewell. It is in this context that I have been thinking of Jarrah. Of course, I've long been wondering when we'd meet again. When she would come out from her covering, emerge from the chrysalis of distance like existence from a voice. She's my pen pal, a favourite writer of mine whose words sum up a country I do not know. We've actually spent just one hour chatting in person. I remember her hair and her kangaroo fur shawl, smelt of campfires and spiced tea. And we decided in an instant that we ought to exchange letters. And so we have. For some years now. But the methods by which we send messages are getting stranger and stranger. Stranger. Recently she sent me something made from mauve smoke and clouds broken into a sort of visual morse code. It was a message that read, Make me something impossible. So I took a stick of cherry wood and crafted it into a blonde and ochre-coloured cockatoo and threw it up into the thick of a flock and told it to fly across the country to her and once there to squawk out the same request to her. Come on, Jarrah, create poetry. And somehow it was as though I could watch on from afar. And so one night I thought I saw her throw a scrap of paper out the window, and I was surprised to see her littering. But when I looked more closely I saw that the rubbish hadn't fallen, that it had gone against gravity, that in fact she had made a moon all crumpled and full of folds, adorned with stars, her face catching sunlight, framed by the scrap timber from which Jara had shaped her shack. And in the morning a yellow butterfly wandered straight through my front door. And we followed it, Jara and I both. She had high-tech binoculars and I went on foot. The butterfly was heading towards the mountain range. It wobbled up the slopes like a wonky puppet with neither itinerary nor map. And when it reached the top, it turned into the sun, a bright glow on an unlikely arc across the sky. You see, there's this desert between us. A great big one of burnt brown sand, where white bushes spread roots all around and marsupials silhouette themselves on the horizon. The whole country quivers with the scents and gasses of flammable trees. And from parapets at either end we watch one another, squinting to see the world the other knows. And so it is that one by one beautiful things have emerged, distance as their birthplace. Jara is embraced by the ocean and the west, I am drawn into constellations that sit upon alpine summits. When she tosses words into the wind, they reach me days later, stained with red dust. I cast a batch of birds her way, or tape messages to a whale's back. And everything I send her is ten degrees cooler, like an apple that's been gotten out from the fridge. For a long time, I have acquiesced to the fact that this is a desert that cannot be crossed. But it's still been possible to get a message out. Kept apart, we have found our own original methods of communication, you see. Just as they say that censorship is the mother of metaphor, in being separated, we may well discover truer ways of being together. We may manage to sing along. Or chant a mantra together from miles apart. Still, you hope in due time that you might receive a certain message, one that says, The highways are open, for the moment at least. Would you like to meet me in the middle? And so we start to plan a rendezvous in the hills that roll off into the desert. We agree to encounter one another somewhere easy to find, like beneath the biggest flock of budgerigars out there, or in the dead center of the west wind, or in the pause between the stanzas of a poem.